Hey there, this is Hannah, Chief Rebel at DeSkills. Imagine your high schooler could learn to harness artificial intelligence to solve real-world problems for small businesses and nonprofits. Imagine they could get paid doing these impact projects on the weekends or summer break. And imagine that as a result, they could leave high school with more experience and connections than most college graduates. That's DeSkills. Learn more at skills.io. That's dskills.io. This podcast is funded by Ted Dintersmith, the executive producer of the acclaimed film Most Likely to Succeed, and the author of the best-selling book, What School Could Be. everyone. Welcome to the What School Could Be podcast. I'm your host, Josh Rapoon. Before we start the show, please check out all the resources at whatschoolcouldbe.org and our global online community. If you are a committed education change agent ready to roll up your sleeves and reimagine teaching and learning, simply install the What School Could Be app on your mobile device or navigate to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org. I hope to see you there. My guest today is Ali Wong, a PBL Works national faculty member who is extremely passionate about project-based learning, mainly because as a graduate from a PBL high school herself, she has seen firsthand the benefits of student-centered, authentic, and real-world learning. From 2012 through 2022, Ali worked as a math science instructor, as a dean of students, as a school director, and as a graduate school of education instructor at High Tech High, the school made famous by the acclaimed film Most Likely to Succeed. Her specialties include differentiated instruction, multidisciplinary projects that incorporate math, collegial coaching, techniques, and much more. Ali also developed a successful approach to collaborative design that lifts student voice into the project design process. Ali holds her BS in liberal arts from Soka University of America, a master's in teaching and curriculum from the University of Pennsylvania, and a master's in educational leadership from the High Tech High Graduate School of Education. Lisa Morellis, a former guest on this show, a deeper learning Obi-Wan, and a colleague of Ali's said this about her for today's episode. Quote, when I first met Ali Wong, I was struck by her warmth, energy, and joy. I immediately felt like she was someone I wanted to know, be friends with, and learn from. Once I spent more time with her, I realized she is a beacon of joyful energy, relentless enthusiasm, and lived expertise in the deeper learning educational landscape. Her journey from a project-based learning student in high school to a project-based learning teacher and school leader has profoundly shaped her, unlocking incredible opportunities for those who have known and worked with her. While specializing in K-8 instruction, Ali's keen eye extends to CTE and high school courses, demonstrating her versatile educational expertise. Known for her dynamic and effective facilitation style, she effortlessly logs over 10,000 steps during workshops, 
ensuring every participant receives invaluable feedback on their school or project plans, which is a testament to her belief in the transformational power of feedback. To get a sense of Ali's true essence, which includes creativity and love for nature and others, is to know that Ali also has an incredible gift for plants, evident in her home, indoor and outdoor garden, where she is growing her own centerpieces for her upcoming wedding. An animal lover at heart, she skillfully trains her two dogs and bunny, embedding feedback and positive reinforcement into their lives." End quote. And now, here's my conversation with Ali Wong. Ali Wong, welcome to the What School Could Be podcast. Thank you. So, Allie, one of my favorite podcasts, the very first podcast I started listening to back 10 years ago, is called On Being. And I love the conversations the host, Krista Tippett, designs. So Tippett always starts her interviews with a question about spirituality, which I love. So I'm going to start today's conversation with a question about your spiritual life, if you will. So you shared with me that you are Buddhist which teaches that world peace is possible through all humans becoming absolutely happy. So what are the ways you choose to live your life that help you travel towards absolute happiness? Thank you for this question. My Buddhist practice is a huge part of how I grew up, why I do what I do, and who I am now. The idea that every single person can become absolutely happy really refers to true happiness, not what we call relative happiness. And relative happiness are things that are fleeting or things that really maybe make us happy for just one minute, but then, you know, in the long run, aren't very lasting. Mm. True happiness really comes from each person doing their own human revolution so that they become strong as they go through the challenges that they face in their daily life. So no matter who you are, everyone experiences challenges. But the idea of absolute happiness is that in the crucial moment when you need your compassion or when you need your courage or when you need your wisdom, you have that unlimited potential already in your own life, and you can tap into it. And so that's the idea of absolute happiness. And to me, that really relates to education, because it's in education where we teach students that they have unlimited potential, and we help them unlock that potential. So what are, just back to, you know, your daily life, is there, because I'm not Buddhist and I have my own sort of quasi, I suppose, spiritual practices, but what are some of the things that you do sort of day in and day out that ground you and center you and keep you kind of on that pathway and and aware? I guess it's more about awareness than anything else. Yeah, so in a lot of different sects of Buddhism, there's some form of meditation. And so my sect of Buddhism is actually called Nichiren Buddhism. And in my Buddhism, we have a chant. And that chant is Nam-myoho-renge-kyo. 
And we repeat it like a mantra Mm. every single day. So every day I sit down first thing in the morning and I do that chant. And I do it again every evening before I go to bed. And the idea is that when I do that chant, what I'm doing is I'm calling forth my own greatest potential from within my life. Mm. And so that's part of my daily practice that really helps me to remember that I am a Buddha and I have a highest life state of being and that I am able to really help others to become happy too. Mm. And so to the education part again, like in a sort of tangible practical way, Ali, like what does that look like when you tie together that sense of a journey towards absolute happiness and education? I mean, for our listeners just trying to grasp onto like how that plays out in your life and in your life as as an educator, which is really the primary life that you live. Yeah. So I became a teacher because I truly believe that every single person has a mission Mm. and to me, that the role of a teacher is to show students their unlimited potential and to help them to determine what their individual mission that only they can complete in this lifetime, help them understand what that mission is and give them the tools that they need so that they can unlock their potential so that they can become truly happy. Mm. In Buddhism, we really believe in helping others and that actually helping others is what helps us to access our own happiness. And it's part of the fulfillment that we need in life in order for us to be happy is to be in service of others. And I also believe that in order for world peace to truly happen, part of that comes from every single individual realizing their potential and their mission. And so Therefore, without every child having access to the best education possible, you know, world peace wouldn't happen. Wow, that's so interesting. You know, Ali, I've been over the last year, maybe even two years, there have been a lot of conversations that have been coming up around helping kids find their passion. And I got to a point where I started to feel a little bit uneasy because it felt like we were rushing them too quickly towards something that we all think of as passion. And you refer to it more as gaining a sense of mission, that you have some sort of mission in the world. I wonder what you what you think about that and about those conversations that are happening. Yeah, I think they're very similar. I think that finding your passion is similar to finding your mission. I think finding your mission is almost even greater than finding your passion because you can be passionate about a lot of different things. Right. But each person has one mission in their lifetime that is unique to them, that they're the only person on this planet in the universe that can fulfill. Mm. And it's, it's a little bit deeper than just what you're passionate about. I myself maybe felt rushed into deciding early on in life what my passion or mission was going to be. Interestingly, every single person that knew me well always told me that I should be a teacher, Mm. but I wasn't fully sure that that's what I wanted to be when I was younger. My mom also works in education, and so there was a part of me that wanted to do my own thing. But by the time I had entered university, I already knew I wanted to be a teacher and that that was what my mission was. Wow, that's awesome. So kind of along the same line, Sally, last year I read an amazing book titled The Good Ancestor by Roman Krasnarik. And in it, the author describes a series of, quote, good ancestor questions 
and prompts that lead to deep conversations. And you noted your interest in one of those questions, which is, what do you think should be the ultimate goal of the human species? Which makes sense, given what you've just said about happiness and education and having a mission. So let's just say, and and I know this might be kind of heavy <laughs> this early in the morning, but if a friend, a colleague, expressed the idea to you tomorrow or today that she is maybe depressed by how much of a mess the world seems to be in right now, what would you say? What what counsel would you give? And maybe another way to ask it is, how do you keep the weight of the world off your shoulders, Allie? I think that that is a daily struggle for me. And that's also why I have to chant every single day. Mm. That's kind of like my spiritual workout. It's my daily reminder that even though there are so many things in this world that I desperately want to change, there are things within my own realm of control, my locus of control, that I can have an impact on Mm -hmm. each day. And so I think what I would counsel another person is that everyone feels that way, especially right now. And the way to move forward is one by one, one person at a time. I always try to give my full attention and my full focus to the person in front of me Mm. at any given moment. And the idea is that really change happens, not necessarily on such a huge level. I think change can really happen when it's heart to heart. And I've seen that when I'm working with teachers and when I'm working with students who have different challenges, when we try to approach those, you know, through a big way or through changing school rules or changing things in the classroom. I think it can work, but I think what truly works is when you have a heart-to-heart connection. Mm. And so the idea that we can create change by creating more and more heart-to-heart connections, mm. having more dialogue, doing more listening is actually going to make a bigger difference in the long run because Mm. one by one by one, if we're able to have those kind of interactions, every single interaction, slowly but surely, we will see change in our environment. Wow, that's awesome. And you know, that's a perfect segue to my next question. And it's time for us to dive into project-based learning and your work at PBL Works and also looking back at your years as an educator at High Tech High. So Ali, a few days ago, I got an announcement in my inbox from PBL World, which is an event in June 2024 put on by PBL Works. And the description in the email talked about deepening educators' understanding of, quote, gold standard project-based learning, end quote. So the subtext here is that there is gold standard project-based learning and project-based learning that might be below gold standard and perhaps not grounded in deeper learning. So what is this gold standard and how will this June 2024 conference work to elevate the standards of project-based educators who attend? 
Gold standard project-based learning is when a project has all of the seven design elements. They are a challenging problem or question, sustained inquiry, authenticity, critique, reflection. And the idea is that when we have all of those different design elements, when projects are really authentic to students' lives, when there's connections to the real world, when students are grappling with real problems, not just problems that a teacher made up in the classroom Mm. that are challenging for them, that show students we trust them to become critical thinkers, there's a difference in that type of PBL. Mm. Sometimes we think of PBL as just being hands-on activities, Mm. Mm-hmm. which hands-on activities are great, but they're just not necessarily a project in terms of the way we think of projects in project-based learning. Mm. In project-based learning, we think of the project as being the way that students learn, the method through which students learn, not just a hands-on activity. And so I think that the, that's a key difference, that students are solving real problems, that they're authentic to their own lives, that they have voice and choice within their project and what they're doing and how they're learning versus just maybe doing something to either demonstrate their learning or just doing something that's hands-on. Mm. So a couple of follow-up questions. Like, what is the actual kind of gold standard process for discovering the authenticity in the project? Like how does the teacher and the student or the students, the learners, you know, working together, figure out how to make whatever the project is that they, that they want to work on authentic, real world and connected. What is that process that you go through? And I know this is like all of your work encapsulated practically in one question, but how does that work? There's more than one process because every teacher works, you know, in different ways and all students are different. So there's definitely more than one process. But I think it starts with teachers knowing their students well, Mm. knowing what they're interested in, knowing what they're curious about, knowing what might be challenging for them. So that's where it starts is with teachers knowing their students well. Right. And then from there... If a teacher is designing a driving question for a project or a theme for a project, that teacher will think about what are my students interested in? What are they curious about? How does where's the crossover with the subject that I'm teaching or the standards I need to cover this year? And then that can become a project. And then the last piece of authenticity is that it's connected to student interests and it's also connected to something greater in the world. So a job that students might choose to do when they finish college or a job related to the content material. How can you really make this project something that's connected? Maybe it's in service of someone else or a group of people. Maybe it's solving a problem that they're having at their own school on their own level. But how can you really connect it to something that is a true need? Another thing that I did as a teacher when I was researching, I was really interested in collaborative design. Mm. So not only how do I know who my students are and connect their interests to my content material as a teacher, but how can I actually collaboratively design a project with students? Mm. And so that was a process I developed over the course of my years teaching at High Tech High, where I began my year by asking students 
what are you curious about, about the world? And we used their questions to generate our driving question and our project themes. And we actually would co-design that project together based on student interests, the questions that they had, and the content that we were covering that year. Wow, that's awesome. So the second follow-up question actually moves us a little bit further along the project timeline. And, you know, I made a documentary two, well, three years ago called The Innovation Playlist. And it, it basically told the story of five public schools in my home state of Hawaii that were doing some really innovative work in education. And there is this dramatic moment, Ali, in the film where a teacher on the island of Kauai is talking about project-based learning and she's sort of pounding her hand in her, in her fist or her fist in her hand. And she says, I'm trying to get across to the students that this is not not just a project, this is a mission. And so we're kind of back to that mission idea. So is there a moment in gold standard PBL where the project itself starts to take on mission quality, if you will? And does that happen all the time? Or is that just sort of something that you aspire to, where you really believe in what you're doing? It's definitely something to aspire to. Right. I think part of our job as teachers is to help students see themselves as activists, as fighters for social justice. And a lot of projects, when we give students ownership and when we give them the ability to lead the direction of the project, we see that kind of spark in them take over and they begin to care or show empathy or, you know, really see themselves as having the power to create change through their projects. So it's definitely something to aspire to all the time. And so I know this would kind of put you on the spot, but my listeners are always feeding back to me that they love specific examples. So is there an example in in your recent memory of a project that you saw unfold that really kind of reached that gold standard? And if yes, what, what was that project about? There's so many projects that I've seen that can reach that gold standard. I'm going to share one, not that I did as a teacher, just because I've spent a while at PBL Works and as a school leader, but I visited a school in December Hmm. and they were having an exhibition of student learning. And this was a fifth grade project. And their project was in conjunction with the Humane Society Hmm. here in San Diego. Mm -hmm. And students worked to create campaigns to help get cats and dogs adopted. And so they did some persuasive writing and then they built either a dog house or a cat condo Mm. for the animals that need to be adopted. And so that incorporated a lot of the math standards that they were learning for fifth grade. And then they hosted and planned and held their own pet adoption day. So they had all the animals come to the park near the school. And everyone who adopted a cat or a dog that day was able to also take home for free either the dog house or the cat condo that had been made by our students. Wow. Wow, Ellie. Wow, I'm blown away by this. This is like (laughs) such an amazing example. Goodness, like goosebumps over here. Wow. I'm just thinking of the multiplicity of, I guess, interdisciplinary learning that was going on during that project, right? Is that that's what was going on? Just so many different elements to it. Yeah, I really loved 
seeing at the exhibition how deeply the students cared about their mission to get these cats and dogs adopted. They had written about it. They had gotten to experience meeting these animals. They were super passionate about the designs that they created. They were very creative for their cat condos and for their dog houses. And so just seeing that passion for adoption versus buying pets sparked in those kids was really powerful. Wow, that's so cool. You know, Ellie, just last week I was going through some old hard drives trying to do some consolidation and I found a file folder that had a bunch of videos in it. And basically they captured the moment that my wife and I first got our cat, Ramo, his, we call him Boo, and he was a rescue cat. And there's a video that she was shooting of me holding him for the first time. And he's just like, he's no bigger than the palm of my hand. And you can just tell it's like, it's one of those moments, you know, when you adopt an animal and you you bring it into your family. Anyway, that's just such a great example. I love that. Okay. So one more question before we go to break. So Ali, you wrote a blog for PBL Works titled Creating Future Leaders Through PBL Success Skills. And I was like, wow, talk about a cool topic to dive into. So I think on this podcast, I've covered multiple reasons why PBL is important, including student engagement, deeper learning, collaboration, teamwork skills, having a mission, etc. But how PBL can create future leaders is somewhat fresh farmland, I think. So your parents made an extraordinary decision to enroll you at a small, otherwise unknown charter school in San Diego called High Tech High. And the story of what happens to Ali Wong, the shy, detached adolescent, and the connection between PBL and leadership development is crucial, I think, for our listeners to hear. So what what is that story? Yeah, so I attended really traditional elementary and middle schools in San Diego, and I never really enjoyed school. I was okay at school, but my mission in school was to just slide under the radar. I wanted to be invisible. I just wanted to kind of go and get it over with and be done with school. I was really shy. I wouldn't, you'd never have caught me speaking in public. Mm. And when I was about to start high school, my parents were trying to figure out, you know, where should we enroll Allie? Should we put her, you know, continue on the public school track? And by chance, my mom in a grocery store heard about High Tech High and decided to enroll me. And initially, I was terrified. You Mm. know, I was already a kid who hated being out of their comfort zone. And you just, you know, took me away from all of my friends. However, it ended up being the first time in my experience in school where I was shown trust by adults. to do things that were hard or to maybe even just make mistakes and learn through those mistakes. It was the first time I was treated like a thinker, someone who could actually be the problem solver. And it was there that I really gained the skills to become a future leader. Wow, that's so interesting, Ellie, because your life and my life, even though we're decades apart in age, are exactly the same. I slid under the radar. I tried to stay as invisible as possible in school, especially in middle and high school. Absolutely, you couldn't get me to speak for any reason, especially publicly. 
But I think I lived, and I've talked about this on the show, I lived a double life, meaning as soon as I left school and went home to my large family on the windward side of Oahu here, that was a completely different life. Every night was a symposium at the dinner table about some topic or the other. I, I was a builder, a designer, was working with people in the community. So that's, it's really interesting. What a pivotal moment for you and your parents to make that decision for you to go to high tech high. It really changed the arc of your life, right? It definitely did. And so over the course of the years, like, I guess what I'm asking is that your awareness of your own leadership skills and confidence and your your mission has grown and that you're aware at a metal level of that growth. Is that a fair way to look at it? Yes. Tell me a little bit more about how you're aware of that as you day in and day out, and you're, you're way into this journey now, but you're still aware that your growth is happening as a leader and as an educator? I think it started in high school where I really began to see myself as, as someone who could create positive change. Mm, mm -hmm. And continued as I went on to university, I attended a really small private liberal arts school called Soka University of America. And their mission is really aligned with Buddhism mm -hmm. in that their mission is around creating people who are going to create positive change in the world. And got my liberal arts degree. I went on to get a master's from the University of Pennsylvania in education and went on to begin teaching. Mm. And I really vividly remember my first year of teaching at high tech middle and going into it thinking, well, I know project-based learning. I was taught this way. And then realizing, oh my gosh, I have so much to learn about being a teacher and all of the things that teachers have to do in order to make project-based learning, you know, truly gold standard and truly the for learning, but I learned alongside my students. And actually, my very first year as a high tech middle teacher was the year that I developed my method for collaborative design, mm. where students were able to design their own project. And so the first project that we did of the school year was just called like design a project. That was the project we were doing as a class. And then the second project we did was we did the project that we designed as a class. Wow. And I don't think would have done that had I not had my experiences as a student at High Tech High, where I always wished I could be the project designer. And so I wanted to give my students that opportunity. Mm. And every year I felt I just, you know, I learned so much. I grew so much. And when I moved into school leadership, I had amazing mentors that supported me as I was a dean of students and as I was a school director. Mm. That support really kind of carried me through my learning process as a school administrator. Yeah. And it really sounds to me, Ali, like your growth, if you will, as a leader, as a school leader, is very much grounded in the collaborative part of that growth, that you don't just grow alone, that you grow together with other people. And I, I love that idea. And also, before we go to break, just want to share with our listeners that, and I'll put this in the show notes, that your PBL Works blog page 
is the bomb. Absolutely. I got so lost in that page, Ellie. I went down a rabbit hole and I started reading these blogs and it was like hours later before I emerged. And there's one in particular that I really enjoyed about how play can be a part of professional development for educators. And again, I'll put that in the show notes because that's one of my favorite reads already in 2024. So anyway, hey everyone, we've been talking to Ali Wong, a PBL Works national faculty member whose passion, whose mission is project-based learning. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hi, fellow educators. I'm Steve Shapiro. And like you, I'm excited about the possibilities of what school could be. Please check out my podcast, Experience Matters, where I talk to guests ranging from big national thinkers like Daniel Pink and Tony Wagner to recent high school graduates about the most profound learning experiences of their youth. Then we dig into the implications for how we can reshape schools to produce powerful breakthrough learning for all of our students. Education can take many forms, but whatever form it takes, experience matters. Hey there. Are you interested in hearing weekly conversations with authors, leaders, and practitioners at the forefront of learning and education innovation? Then you'll love the Getting Smart podcast. This podcast amplifies the incredible work being done by some of the most innovative minds in education. Learn new leadership styles, new technologies, new frameworks and mindsets, and get the fuel you need to stay motivated and curious. Together, we can empower all learners to thrive. It's available at gettingsmart.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, friends. This is Toy Hirschman from EntreEd. It is my great honor to uplift this excellent podcast, What School Could Be. As always, we are super excited to support innovation in education. We've been lucky enough to feature some of the incredible What School Could Be educators on our podcast. If you are looking to be inspired by entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial educators and other great minds from across the world, check out the EntreEd Talk podcast and please like and subscribe and leave a review. Thanks for tuning in. Hey everyone, we are back with Ali Wong, a PBL Works national faculty member with deep ties to High Tech High, a network of charter schools in San Diego featured in the acclaimed film, Most Likely to Succeed. So Ali, what school could be is grounded in five themes, which are mobilizing your community, student-driven learning, real-world challenges, assessments for deeper learning, and caring and connected communities. So my question is about the last of the five themes. So how does, I suppose, gold standard project-based learning build and sustain caring and connected communities? Like take us into a project and paint as vivid a picture as possible of how this happens. I think it begins with your classroom community. And I think that project-based learning builds really strong culture in the classroom because, you know, all teachers try to build culture in their classrooms, but icebreakers really only go so far. I think when students are working together on a united mission that is their project and they have challenges that they're facing together 
and they are using each other as true resources and experts. Like that culture becomes really powerful in a single classroom. Mm. And when you take that culture across an entire school, right? Because you have every single child in every single classroom engaged in seeing themselves as leaders, seeing themselves as having a responsibility to help others within their classroom, right? Every classroom in the school has that. You have a very powerful school culture. And then I think that school can play a powerful role in their community. I gave an example earlier about a project that impacted the community in San Diego through partnership with the Humane Society, right? But when you have a school where each child feels like they have an important job, an important role in their classroom, and thus in their school, that school can really become a place of positive change in their neighborhood and in their community. So do you have another example of where a project that as it was moving forward, Ali, you could almost tangibly in a kind of tactile way, see that a caring and connected community was developing as a result of the design, the co-collaboration on the design of the project and the execution of the project? Is there another one that kind of really captures it for you? I want to share about a project that I actually did as a student, Mm. and it's the project that actually helped me to decide that I wanted to work in the field of education. Wow, awesome. We were given the task of making a documentary, and we had full like range over what the topic of our documentaries could be. And we were working with a partner and my partner and I really struggled to decide, you know, like what, what should our topic be? But we had to do a comparison of some sort in our documentary. And what we ended up deciding on was we were going to do a comparison of education in San Diego Mm -hmm. and education in Tijuana, Mexico. Mm -hmm. And for our documentary, we visited schools in San Diego And as 15, 16-year-old high school students got to help out in those schools, got to interview students and teachers for our documentary. And then we did the same thing with a school in Tijuana, Mexico. We spent a whole day there getting to know students, helping the teachers, talking to the teachers, and capturing film for our documentary. And it was there through that project, really seeing some of the differences in education between two countries or two cities that I really became aware of different cultures of what it means when people are talking about equity. And it was that project that actually inspired me to become a teacher. Wow, that's amazing. And it also seems to harken back to something you said a few minutes ago, which is that as that process unfolded, you really began to understand as a student that you were in the middle of gold standard project-based learning. And even though when you became a teacher, you realized, as you said, that you had a lot to learn about the process of teaching in a project-based learning environment. But at that moment, during that process, the production, the shooting, the post-production, the exhibition of the film, and and the relationships that you built across the border, that you were immersing, you were literally being immersed in the process of gold standard project-based learning, right? Absolutely. Wow. And can you share a little bit about, like, was there a moment when the documentary was screened? Was there an exhibition? 
Yes, there was an exhibition and all of the documentaries. We had a special screening in our school. We changed our classroom to kind of look like a movie theater Mm. and invited the whole school as well as our families, as well as members from the community to come and view our documentaries. I was also able to send our specific documentary to the students, the school in Mexico that we visited so that they got to see it too. And we worked really hard to have it translated. Wow. I can only imagine, Allie, the energy in the room when that exhibition, when those screenings happened, right? It must've been electric. Yeah. It's such a proud moment um, (laughs) as a student, because if you remember right before this, I would have never been caught public speaking. And then here I am sharing a documentary that I wrote and directed and produced along with my partner, right? So we were both featured in the documentary as well, talking about our opinions and experiences. But to watch from the back of the room where there's a huge room of people watching you on, on a big screen is a definitely a really important part of the experience of project-based learning. It's nerve-wracking <laughs> and it's exciting and it's a celebration of learning. And I think every child deserves to have that feeling of, I created something unique and important and now it's being celebrated. Wow. That's just so cool, Allie. I can actually share, and I think I've talked about this on the show before, that my proudest moment as a student came in high school when I actually made a short film. It was a 17-minute film in which I translated a James Thurber fable called The Unicorn in the Garden onto film. And this is back in Super 8 days. And I remember like it was yesterday, Allie, when I screened the film in class to my classmates and my teacher. And I even went so far as to track down a honky-tonk piano player in Honolulu who came and actually played the score live right there in the classroom. And to me, that was the moment my universe, the day my universe changed. That's when I realized that I had something to contribute, you know? And oh boy, that's so cool. I just wish I had been there when that happened for you. Okay. So speaking of videos, Ali, I watched a beautiful video that features you at the 2017 Deeper Learning Conference in San Diego. And about two minutes in, you say that project-based learning begins with establishing relationships with one's learners. And you've talked about this already. So this got me thinking about the educator who is interested in project-based learning and deeper learning, but feels maybe some sense of discomfort at the idea of relationships with learners, which seems to require some measure of vulnerability. So what are your thoughts about this? Like, how does PBL works? How do you, how do your colleagues work educators through what I imagine is frequent discomfort about that kind of relationship with learners? In my personal opinion, I don't think that we can learn from someone that we don't have a relationship with. I think it's really challenging to be vulnerable enough to learn something if we don't have an amount of trust, if we don't have an amount of respect. So I think that that always comes first. And I noticed that in my own experience as a student. Mm. Prior to coming to High Tech High, I had lots of teachers, some of them really good, some of them not so good. And There was a huge difference, though, in the type of relationship that I had with my teachers when I 
started at High Tech High versus my previous schools. Instead of, you know, just having a student-teacher relationship where the teacher answers the questions because they have the authority of the classroom, the student-teacher relationship was one where we can learn alongside each other. I can learn just as much from you as you can learn from me. And actually together, we're going to be more powerful and have a better, not just relationship for both of us, but a better learning experience together if it's reciprocal, Mm. that students are respected and something to be learned from. I think to me, I don't see it as being more challenging or making oneself more vulnerable. I think one thing that I was a little bit nervous of when I became a teacher was that I had to be the person with all of the answers. Mm, yep. Not perfect. I don't know the answer to everything, even within, you know, my own subject level that I'm teaching. And furthermore, I'm not like some genius project planner who has like all the creativity, all the things to be able to just do this on my own. I need my students to learn alongside me and to provide me with that inspiration in order for us to produce something amazing. And I don't have to do it alone because as teacher and students, you can work together towards that goal in the classroom. Yeah, Ali, again, our lives are, are very much aligned. When I started teaching history and economics and other elements of social studies, I was keenly aware from the very beginning that I was not a subject area expert, that I just didn't have the ability to memorize history and then just sort of translate it back to students. I just couldn't do that. And I think in some ways over those 17 years, I did walk with a bit of imposter syndrome thinking as I compared myself to other content area teachers who were sages on the stage and and delivering that content that I was not one of them. So I think the way that I adjusted was to say, I have to co-learn with my students because I'm not that content teacher. And I guess maybe my question has to do with, like when PPL Works does its workshops, when you pull together teachers and you're working through gold standard PBL, how do you practically sort of give or provide some exposure to the idea that you're co-learning with your students when the students are not there? Or are the students there sometimes when you do that work? I try to model that in my workshops as well. So even though I'm coming in as a consultant or as a PBL Works national faculty, I believe that my job as a facilitator is to help harness the wisdom that's already in the room. And so my job is not to be a sage on the stage, as you just said, but my job is to get teachers in those workshops talking to one another or get Mm. leaders in workshops talking to one another and sharing the things that they're already doing, the work that they're already doing. And the more that I can get them to talk and lift up that wisdom, Mm. the better experience of every single person in the room so that I can learn alongside too. And of course, I can participate and share my ideas or things that I've seen in the past that work. But I love to model that. Mm. I also love to just share 
with teachers, the mistakes I made when I was planning projects or with leaders, the mistakes I made when I was, you know, running a school. Because I think that understanding that we learn from our mistakes and that it's okay to do it in front of your teachers and do that in front of your students. In fact, like there's no way around that you're going to make mistakes, but kind of talking through how I learned from them or how you can learn from them can be a really powerful moment for everyone. Mm. So I think I try to model that. And then I also kind of talk about my past experiences. Right. Wow. That's awesome. I love that. I love the idea that even though you're in a room with a bunch of other adults, if you start from the assumption that you're all educators and you're all learners, then you're all in it together. And when you get back into your classroom, then that same ethic, that same sort of zeitgeist exists as you go forward. That's very, very cool. So Ali, one more question before we go to our second break. I read a a really cool piece at tinkercast.com, which quotes you and others about the power of project-based learning. So my question has to do with solutions. So last year, I read a book by Zoe Weil that really rocked my world, titled The World Becomes What We Teach. And in it, Weil makes the case that simply figuring out solutions to problems is not enough, that learners need to become what she calls solutionaries, meaning those problem solvers who take into account every possible moral and ethical angle to a possible solution. So like a solution to a problem over here could mean a terrible disaster over there and so on. So how does PBL Works tackle these kinds of conundrums? How do you approach the idea that as you work on a project, as you move forward with a mission, that the mission itself, that the students, the learners, the teachers together are looking at it, I suppose, from every possible angle to understand that whatever is being worked on, the solution that everybody is coming to actually works everywhere. I know that sounds kind of clunky the way that I asked it, but I think you know what I mean. I think I do. I think that's one of the reasons why we work in groups. We work in groups when we're planning projects. We work in groups when students are doing their projects. Because I just think no one person can come at a problem from every single angle yeah. by themselves. Yeah. But when you harness the power of the group, you get all of the perspectives of different people in the group. And so I think that that is maybe the most powerful resource in being able to make sure that you've come up with a holistic solution to a problem. And I think the same can be true of, you know, teachers, like when they're planning their projects, I was always really careful as a school leader to think about the makeup of each grade team and how teachers would work together and what each teacher would bring to the team. Mm. And so I think that when we have unique voices and different people with different backgrounds and experiences come together to work on something together, to create something together or solve a problem together, that's the best way to mm. make sure that we are including multiple perspectives. So if we went back to the Humane Society in San Diego example, I guess what I'm thinking about, Ali, is sort of like that there are multiple minds who are asking, have we thought about this? Have we thought about that? And that's really the process of becoming a solutionary, is that you ask that question. And 
Do you see that happening in projects where that's a very natural thing for members of a team working on a project will come to that kind of place where it's it's quite natural to ask, have we thought about this or have we thought about that? I think I have seen that in a lot of really good projects. I think one of the design elements of gold standard project-based learning is sustained inquiry. Mm. And students are always engaging in the process of asking questions. It begins with a driving question for the project, but as students are learning and developing and prototyping solutions, usually more and more questions keep arising based on what they thought they knew and realized they didn't know. And so the idea that there's always questions to be asked is what helps students to truly become lifelong learners. Mm. But I think, you know, to try to bring it down to like a granular example within the Humane Society project, the fifth graders had multiple drafts of their cat condos or dog houses that evolved over time and they continued to get feedback. So they not only asked themselves like, okay, did I think of everything? But they also had other people look at their work and tell them, oh, did you think about this? Or did you think about Mm. this? They also got to meet their animals that they were designing for and learn about them. And so it was really lovely to see how students had incorporated some things that they had learned about their dog or cat into their design. For example, one student had met the dog that they were designing a dog house for and the dog had jumped into a chair or onto a a desk at, at the school or something. And so he purposefully designed this flat roof of his dog house with this ramp so that the dog could get on top because clearly the dog liked being on top of things and having a great view. And so it was really cool to see how they adjusted or made changes based on feedback that they got or based on their understanding of who they're designing for. Wow, Allie, that's just this this humane society example is the gift that just keeps on giving. And I'm just I'm just thinking about that student sort of moving towards absolute happiness, you know, and thinking and empathizing with the dog and trying to make it wow, that's just such a great example. Okay, so hey everyone, we've been talking to Ali Wong, a graduate of a project-based learning high school who has seen firsthand the benefits of student-centered, authentic, and real-world deeper learning. So stay with us. We'll be right back. This is Guy Kawasaki. If you want to learn how to be a remarkable person, please check out my podcast, Remarkable People. I interview people like Roy Yamaguchi, Margaret Atwood, Jane Goodall, Stephen Wolfram, Stephen Pinker, Ariana Huffington, and Steve Wozniak. The point of the podcast is to help you become a little bit more remarkable. To learn more, go to remarkablepeople.com. Thank you. Aloha, my name is Aaron Shorn, a previous guest on this very podcast. I am also now head of growth and community at Hawaii's own Unruler. Unruler is a collaborative mobile and web platform that accelerates innovation, grows culture and community, and celebrates learning. Learners post multimedia, tag their learning, and through comments are able to work together asynchronously. Each post is a moment of learning that forms the foundation of a joyous learning journey. We can be found at unrulr.com. Mahalo. Are you ready to shake things up in the classroom? Then get ready to blast off into the future of education with the Teacher Nerds podcast. Join Joe DiPaolo and Ron Nober as they share their own experiences 
as well as talk with guests who are experts and innovators in education. From engaging teaching techniques to the latest educational technology, this podcast is a must-listen for anyone passionate about the future of learning. Subscribe and get ready to learn with the Teacher Nerds Podcast. Hey everyone, we are back with Ali Wong, a national faculty member for PBL Works. So Ali, in a white paper you shared with me, you wrote, quote, teaching for mathematical understanding rather than basic skills instruction is one of the proven ways to close the improvement gap, end quote. And you cited Bowler and Gutierrez and Cohn and Schoenfeld. So we could go 50 different directions based on this one sentence alone. But let me ask this. Back 40 years ago, my teachers thought my understanding of math was best illustrated by my quiz and test scores, which most of the time told them I was failing. And math was a miserable experience for me in both middle and high school. So what is teaching for mathematical understanding? And how do the teacher and learner determine what is understood or that deeper learning has been reached? I also struggled with math in school as a student and remember really vividly getting in trouble for with teachers for counting on my fingers. <laughs> Goodness. <laughs> <laughs> and as a teacher, that became something that I absolutely wanted to transform. Mm. I really wanted to make sure that students didn't walk away from my classroom feeling like there's math people and that there's not math people. Mm. And that's kind of like a common misconception that a lot of adults have, right? That like some people can do math and some people just don't have the brain for it. Yep. And so I really wanted to make sure that as a math teacher, I was going to make sure that students felt that they were mathematicians mm. and that it was okay to use all the tools available to them, including their fingers, if that's what they needed in order to understand the math that we were doing in class. And so for me as a student, my fingers were what helped me to really visualize the math that I was doing and actually being able to have that visual mm. compared to just being able to rotely memorize facts, maybe even you know, I would argue shows a deeper understanding of actual math concepts. Mm. And so a lot of what I'm talking about comes from the practice of cognitively guided instruction in mathematics, which is something that I learned about once I became a teacher. I didn't even learn about it until I was already a teacher, but something that once I understood and learned really transformed the way that I taught math. Mm. I had a much larger emphasis on mathematical discourse as a way for students to co-construct knowledge together mm. about mathematical concepts. And of course, we still need ways to, you know, exit tickets and ways to, to measure students' mathematical thinking. But I really utilized discourse as the way to build knowledge together as a class and also for a way for students to interact with math concepts without me giving them a strategy to memorize, mm. but as a way to help guide them through coming up with their own strategies to solve problems that make sense to them and then unearthing or like discovering properties of mathematics together as a class. So maybe we go back to the Humane Society again, and maybe it would be useful for our listeners, Ali, for you to elaborate a little bit more on in that complete project what were the elements of math that students were considering 
as they developed that project and as they worked so hard to help place those animals in homes. So in order to build their cat condos and their dog houses, students had to use a lot of different properties of volume, of surface area. They were responsible for calculating how much wood they would need for their builds or how much of different materials they'd need for their builds. So they had to calculate all of the surface area to be able to make those builds, the measurement and the volume of those spaces. Mm -hmm. And they first created blueprints where they did all of their calculations, got feedback on those blueprints before they even purchased any materials. And is there an element to that when you publicly exhibit your understanding of math, that you're able to talk about that with somebody, that you're able to explain what you've done and how you've designed it, what math was involved. Is that a fair way of looking at kind of an element of of assessment for deeper learning? Oh, absolutely. Listening to kids talk about how they knew how much wood they needed to purchase and why, I think really shows that they deeply understand the concepts of surface area. I also think it gave students a genuine reason for why am I calculating this surface area? Well, because I need to make a doghouse for Rufus, you know? So they had a genuine why for why they were learning the material. And so as they were learning, they were really motivated. And then because it was calculations that they had done themselves, that they had had multiple opportunities to perfect when they were speaking about it at their exhibition, they were really able to explain, okay, here's what I did first and here's why. Mm. You know, Ali, I had one of those, the day the universe changed moments when I was in grad school in 1999, when I saw a, a five minute video, it was only five minutes. And I remember just watching this video and going, wow, everything is changing for me because what it showed was a fifth grade teacher who was working with her students and it was all about geometry. And basically the students were working with architects and folks from the construction industry and from government. And across the school, they were working on a project to build accessibility ramps for folks who are in wheelchairs to be able to access, you know, buildings on campus. And I just remember how magic that felt to me because it just felt so real world, right? That's what it's really all about. Absolutely. That sounds like an amazing project. Yeah, it was it was very very formative for me. It was it it changed the direction of what I was doing as a teacher at that point. Even though I was teaching history, I started looking for examples of ways to do that. So, that's great. So, Ali, you sit at the nexus of two ideas. The first is that most of my listeners have seen Ted Dindersmith's film Most Likely to Succeed, which tells the story of High Tech High and how it could be seen as a model for what school could be or one of the models for what school could be. The second is that you attended High Tech High, taught there, served in administration there, served in its graduate school of education, and I'm sure much more. So in this way, you are my rarest of opportunities. I wonder if if there is any way in the world to give our listeners a way to understand High Tech High's kind of center of gravity, its place, mythical or not, in the kind of pantheon of answers to what school could be. What is it about that place that has that kind of magnetic quality, that gravitational quality that draws people there to see what's going on? I think there's so many things. I think I've talked about this a lot, but I think first, 
comes the relationships between students and teachers and students and administrators mm. and teachers and administrators. I think at High Tech High, you're going to see student-led classrooms and teacher-led schools. And I think that that is really unique and really powerful. And that's one of the things about High Tech High that makes it what school could be. And then the second thing that you're really going to see is you're going to see students engaged in authentic learning experiences that are connected to what they care about as students and connected to things that are happening, important things that are happening in our real world. And I think that their work is displayed in ways that have impact, whether within the classroom, within the school, or even outside in the community, to show that student work can make a difference and that students themselves have belonging and have the ability to impact others. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I want to take this question and, and go in a slightly different direction with it. As we Let's just imagine that we're there, we're in the high-tech complex, which includes elementary schools, middle schools, high schools. You shared with me, Ali, that you always knew you loved working with children and you have never held a job outside of education. And I'm the opposite, meaning teaching was my fourth career and I am still in my fifth, which is retail sales. So my question has to do with a book, Ali, I read a few years ago titled Range by David Epstein. And in it, Epstein dives into differences between specialists and generalists. So broadly speaking, what are your thoughts about how traditional education seems to want to track kids towards specialization, whether that is what they want or not? And I realize I'm asking a leading question here, but you are a big picture thinker and I'm, I'm seizing this opportunity. And I'm also thinking about as you walk through the doors, let's say at High Tech High, that what you're seeing is more generalist and less specialist in terms of the way that kids are developing or being developed or trained or coached and all of that. I wonder what you think about that. Tech High, we try to make sure that students are exposed to lots of different experiences. Yeah. And I, you see some level of the specialization in an individual project, right? It'll specialize in a particular subject area or topic. However, we really want students to experience a wide range of projects over the course of, you know, their entire schooling so that they get exposed to many different things. And so we have that combination of like, okay, we're specializing in this during this project, but in our next project, we're going to specialize in this. And I really believe that that benefits students in that it exposes them to new things. I think that's part of our job as teachers. It's really hard to pick what you want to specialize in until you've been exposed to lots and lots of things. Yeah. And so I think when students, you know, get to discover something that they never knew was a profession before or, you know, had never heard of before that that opens many new doors and opportunities for them yeah. as they're choosing, you know, later what they want to specialize in. But I think part of our job is, as teachers is to expose students to things they've never seen before. 
Mm, wow, that's super interesting. And so, you know, kind of on a different direction, but still sort of staying in terms of like what gold standard PBL is and, and how it can really be sort of a force for change and a mission. You know, that white paper I referenced earlier, which is titled Statement of Contributions to Equity. So, Ali, what a marvelous set of reflections on your teaching and leadership and philosophy ed education. I really enjoyed reading that. And I'm going to quote two lines from a section on your time as a principal and your focus on student discipline. So you wrote, I set out to truly know all 430 of my students, as well as their families on an individual level, and began building trust. I began implementing trauma-informed approaches such as positive discipline, restorative justice, and proactive collaborative problem-solving school-wide. I'm just amazed, Ali, and thinking of all the things we've talked about, there is so much going on in everything that we've talked about. So I wonder if you can share the story of a kid named Bryant and how that story is illustrative of what you set out to do with your students. Yeah, so Bryant was a student that went to the school that I worked at when I was a dean of students, and he was a really bright child. He could sometimes be mischievous. He was always really competitive in sports, and so sometimes that caused a little bit of turmoil with his friends, just that competitive nature. Mm. And I think what I had written about him in that paper was he had gotten sent out of his classroom for a reason. And I remember him getting sent to my office and being really, really upset and telling me that I was the first adult to ever truly listen to him. Yeah. And that's why he had come to me. And I think that that was a transformative moment for me because I knew that I was always trying to show kids that what they said mattered and that I, that I would really listen. But to hear it coming from, you know, a nine-year-old's mouth had a big impact on me and was something that really made me feel like that's something that needs to be changed in our school. Every child feels like every adult is there to be a listener for them. So I think when they feel that way, then they feel that they have a sense of belonging. They feel less inclined to, you know, do things that they know they shouldn't do as long as they know they're going to be heard out fairly by the adults that are caring for them. And I think that in my school, the restorative practices that we used, positive discipline and collaborative problem solving, were really what helped students to feel heard. And also then once they felt heard, feel a sense of responsibility for coming up with their own solutions to problems. Mm. You know, that story really resonated with me, Allie, because there was a moment, I think in the fifth grade for me, when I had a teacher who I think I recall at the time was sort of the only person who was really listening to me when I got into trouble at school. You know, we think about, for the lay public, Alec, positive discipline, restorative justice, proactive, collaborative, problem-solving, you know, can sound like buzzwords that are really hard to access. But when you give it a face, like that, here's this young child, Bryant, and he feels like he's been listened to for the first time that it becomes quite real in moments like that. That's what the practices really are, right? Yes. Yeah, that's awesome. So, Allie, I love to end episodes by giving guests the opportunity to give a shout out to giants upon whose shoulders they stand. So those 
coaches, mentors, guides, advisors, confidence, who helped us all be what we could be. And so your shout out is to the school leaders and something called the Hawaii Innovative Leaders Network, which is coming to the end of its multi-year grant cycle shortly. So what was the genesis of this PBL Works program? What have its mentors or mentees, I should say, experienced? And when did you take over as facilitator? And how does the network as a collective serve as a giant upon whose shoulders you stand? So the Hawaii Innovative Leader Network was facilitated with the support of the Castle Foundation, and it was started almost six years ago by leaders of PBL Works and the Castle Foundation. And it was specifically to bring impactful professional learning to school leaders across the state of Hawaii. And so over the course of the entire network, they have engaged with 99 different school leaders in 84 different schools across Hawaii. Wow. And so for me, the giants that I really, you know, stand on their shoulders are the members of the fourth and fifth cohort. I started facilitating the network about a year and a half ago. And it's the leaders in these different schools across the islands who really just been working tirelessly to bring authentic and impactful learning experiences to students that keep me motivated and inspired to keep doing this work. These school leaders really are the ones who are making magic happen in their schools across the islands. And so that's who I really wanted to kind of shout out. Mm. Is it okay if I talk about our Ohana celebration that's coming up? I was just about to ask you that. Great minds. Perfect. So on June 7th, we're going to be having an Ohana celebration for every single one of those 99 leaders across the state of Hawaii who have ever engaged in our Hawaii Innovative Leader Network. And it's going to be held on the island of Oahu. Exact location will be determined really soon. But we're going to have an opportunity to network with each other, Mm. to build connections with leaders across islands. And cohort five, which is our final cohort who I've been working with, is going to have the opportunity to share their presentations of learning with the entire Hiln Ohana. Mm. And it'll be an opportunity for us to just discuss the matters in education that we really care about to talk about how we've used PBL as a vehicle for deeper learning in different contexts and in different schools. So I'm hoping that all of those leaders who are available will be able to join us on June 7th. Wow, what a magic moment coming up. I can only imagine being a fly on the wall, Ali, and listening to those presentations of learning in that moment as the the final cohort expresses itself collectively to the rest of the members of the cohort. And I'm grateful to you, Ali, for sharing the names on that list, because there are folks on that list who are absolute superheroes to me here in my home state. These are people who, as you say, are just absolutely tireless in their pursuit of bringing real-world learning to their students on their campuses. So that's just, that's great stuff. So let's dedicate this episode, Ali, to the Hawaii Innovative Leader Network. And we will say three cheers to PBL Works for doing this program. And also, by the way, there are networks in other states, correct? Correct. Yeah. Where are they? 
Massachusetts, and New York. Awesome. That's awesome. What a great thing that PBL Works is doing. That's absolutely fantastic. So, Ali Wong, thank you so much for this time today. This has been absolutely amazing. We have dug deeply into gold standard project-based learning, and I'm absolutely fueled up by that Humane Society example. That's going to uh, put uh, electricity in my battery for many months to come. So thank you for spending the time today and for engaging me in the process of getting ready for this episode. And good luck with your work as you head towards June and pulling together the network here on Oahu. Thank you so much for having me. Our editor, creative consultant, and sound engineer is the talented Evan Kurohara. Our theme music is created by a remarkable pianist, Michael Sloan. Producer of 12 albums with over 100 songs, Michael Sloan is featured in Apple Music, Spotify, and all major music platforms. You can also find his work on his YouTube channel. Michael has listeners in over 100 countries and 2,000 cities. We'd be grateful if you would support these episodes with Leading Edge, innovative and imaginative educators and students by giving us your own rating and writing a review wherever you get your podcasts. This series is sponsored by Education Change Agent, Ted Dintersmith, executive producer of the award-winning documentary film, Most Likely to Succeed, and author of the best-selling book, What School Could Be. If you're committed to rolling up your sleeves and joining thousands of educators, business professionals, nonprofit leaders, and parents, as we reimagine education to be relevant and learner-centered, please join the What School Could Be global online community. Simply log in to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org or download the What School Could Be app from your favorite app store. The What School Could Be podcast is brought to you by Josh Rapoon Productions. Send your feedback to josh at whatschoolcouldbe.org. Follow the show on Twitter at WSCB Podcast and on LinkedIn at Josh Rapoon. Listeners, one of the most important things we all can do is to bring kindness and compassion into the world. For sure, we need a surplus of both right now. Until next time, ahui ho, and thank you for listening to the What School Could Be podcast. <laughs>